I think everybody who's interested in science fiction dreams about a future where, you know, humanity goes beyond planet Earth to other planets, and Mars would be that first likely destination. That's, I think, why there's such scientific interest in the potential for microbial life in the subsurface, as well as the potential to have the resources necessary to set up a first human colony off-world. Welcome to the Future Lab podcast, where I'm bringing you the stories behind the technological innovations, taking imagined visions of the future and turning them into a present-day reality. I'm Lucy Johnston. I'm the curator of the annual Future Lab Live exhibition at the Goodwood Festival of Speed, and I study the impact of new technologies on industry, society, and the world around us. I'm meeting people who are tackling the biggest problems facing planet Earth and using technology to change how we live our lives. In this episode, Return Ticket to Mars. This podcast is brought to you by a medical diagnostic company called Randox. And over the series, we're going to be hearing about the work they do and the people who work there. My name is Dr. Kieran Richardson, and I'm the research and development manager at Randox Charanta. It's a major research and development and manufacturing facility based in the Republic of Ireland. Randox develops new medical testing solutions to speed up the diagnosis of a wide range of health conditions. One of the areas that Kieran focuses on is Alzheimer's disease, which is really difficult to definitively diagnose. When a person seems to be exhibiting signs of Alzheimer's, doctors use various methods to try to diagnose it. Questionnaire-based cognitive tests and scanning like a CT scan or an MRI. They can also look at measurements relating to other biomarkers, like hormones. But to do that, they have to test a patient's cerebral spinal fluid. And that's actually extracted through a spinal puncture in your back. Randox realised these tests were all either invasive, time-consuming, or just not useful for widespread screening of the population. So they've been working on other ways to improve how we identify and tackle Alzheimer's. We'll be hearing more about that later. Imagine you need to execute a series of incredibly precise, difficult processes. You only have one shot at getting it right. Billions of pounds have been spent developing the equipment, and years of work have gone into each critical step. If the slightest thing goes wrong, something gets knocked over or damaged, the equipment is millions of miles away and there's absolutely no way you can get anywhere near to fix it. This is the everyday reality for the scientists and engineers working on getting us to Mars and bringing back whatever we discover to Earth. So just what does it take to make a Mars mission go off without a hitch? 
Anita Sengupta is a rocket scientist and aerospace engineer and professor in the Astronautics and Space Technology Department of the University of Southern California. The majority of my career was uh, working at NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory, which is based in Los Angeles, Southern California. And the focus is on the robotic exploration of space. I worked there for 16 years. After NASA, she moved into new areas of space exploration and a specialism in one very specific field. How to land on the surface of other planets and moons. Now she teaches. And I have two research programs at USC. One is based on supersonic aviation and how to mitigate the sonic boom. That's the huge expulsion of energy that happens when an object travels faster than the speed of sound. Much of Anita's work has focused on developing parachute systems that can safely land equipment on Mars, minimising the effects of the sonic boom as the equipment careers towards the surface at supersonic speeds. So now I'm carrying that on for a terrestrial application here uh, for supersonic aircraft. Um, And then I have another research group which is focused on sustainable aviation and what do we need to do from a technology perspective to reduce our carbon footprint with aviation. So I have a busy schedule. (laughs) The thing that originally started Anita on her journey into space exploration and this impressively busy schedule was a childhood love of sci-fi. I am a huge science fiction fan. I'm well known for being a huge science fiction fan, and specifically, I'm a huge Doctor Who fan. I used to watch reruns of old-school Doctor Who on public television in New York. When she says huge Doctor Who fan, she really means it. I attend an annual Doctor Who convention, and uh, my doctor is Tom Baker. I have the scarf as well, so... (laughs) I would say between Doctor Who and Star Trek is probably what got me interested in space exploration and the possibilities, you know, of finding life on other planets. She did have to recalibrate her childhood expectations slightly. Obviously, now as an adult, that would be microbial life. When you're really little, you think about things more from the fantastical aspect. As a kid, it was hoping what I saw in Star Trek and Doctor Who to be real. Reality hits and, you know, you can't travel through time and you can't visit alien civilizations because they we haven't found them yet. As well as being fascinated by space travel as a kid, Anita loved to fly. Back in the day when you flew in the 1980s, when a little kid came on board, they would give you like a packet of coloring books, a little, like a flying pin. So you actually really enjoyed the experience. It was a positive experience, at least for a kid, commercial travel. My dad, who was an engineer, told me about aerodynamic lift and the magic of flight. And I was like, oh, that's amazing. I hope one day I can actually, you know, take off in an airplane myself by being at the controls. And Anita, being something of an expert at turning her dreams into reality managed to make that happen too. As soon as I could, I decided to get my pilot's license. As someone who's loved outer space and dreamt of flying since she was little, I thought Anita could help me understand why Mars is such a focus of space exploration. It's pretty close to us, relatively speaking. That's close, as in hundreds of millions of miles, potentially, depending where Earth and Mars are in orbit. Anita says Mars is also of interest because it has an atmosphere, one scientists believe was probably much thicker in the past. 
potentially with oxygen in it. It also had water on the surface. So we know the planet has evolved quite a bit over time. And because it could have been habitable in the past, because of the conditions that we can see now and track back in time, it could also have had some sort of life on the surface back then. And maybe it still does have some kind of microbial life in the subsurface. This means very simple and hardy life forms, like bacteria. We find bacteria on Earth in even the most extreme environments, from the most acidic to the hottest, coldest, wettest and driest. So there's the fascinating aspect of actually finding life elsewhere in our solar system in a planet which is so close to us. And then the other aspect, too, is that, you know, when you compare it to the moon, which doesn't have an atmosphere, when you have a planetary body with an atmosphere, you can uh, do a, a lot more with that atmosphere. So one of the things that the Perseverance rover is doing is actually making oxygen from Martian CO2. So it's easier to set up a potential, you know, long-term colony on the surface. So we know Mars is a place in our universe we can get to, and where there's a decent chance of finding life. But why are we investing in all this? It's always hard when you do something this momentous or this different from what you normally do to quantify ahead of time. But I think you can take a look, you know, from an economic perspective, whenever you introduce a new segment of the economy, you get an explosion in opportunity and economic growth. Anita compares it to the creation of the internet. I mean, the amount of growth uh, in terms of new capabilities and new jobs and new products and services that came about as of that change is huge. So I think when you expand into the rest of the solar system, you're going to get that same kind of economic growth. It's also just human nature to want to explore the world and the universe around us. It's just our nature to understand things, right? Whether we're doing it from a scientific perspective, which people do every day, like me, um, you know, or from a technology perspective, it's just human nature to be able to want to understand our place in the universe. There's just so much that we don't know. It's like a kid in a candy store, you know, with regards to people who are interested in, you know, planetary science. I think one of the things about missions like this is the sense of the reward at the end of this. We're coming back to Anita a bit later. But now, here's Paul Meacham. To one day have something I worked on, on the surface of Mars, driving around doing science, is so important in you know, helping us to stay on a project like this for, for such a long time. He's another space travel enthusiast, working behind the scenes to turn Mars exploration into a reality. I essentially coordinate all our engineering activities on the ExoMars rover vehicle project. Future Lab is brought to you by Randox. Scientists don't know exactly what causes Alzheimer's disease. But according to Dr. Kieran Richardson, an R&D manager at Randox, they do know there's a very clear link with one gene in your body. That is the ApoE4 gene. If you carry one or more copies of ApoE4, you're much more likely to develop Alzheimer's. It won't happen to everyone, but it's a really useful indicator of risk. And although there's currently no cure for the disease, if a person understands their risk level, they can take preemptive measures. It's known that through lifestyle modification, so enhanced brain exercise, etc., that you can have some impact on progress and obviously living a healthier lifestyle, better diet can help. 
So Roundox knew that identifying the APOE4 gene in patients has the potential to help a lot of people over time. But current methods for investigating the presence of the gene require specialist staff and are really labour-intensive. So we've developed a test that can rapidly and easily identify your APOE4 status from a blood sample. They just need one blood sample, which they place on a unique piece of technology developed at Randox called a biochip. This simple test can tell doctors whether a person carries the APOE4 gene within 36 minutes. And then, armed with that information, a person can take steps to try to minimise whether or how much they're impacted by the disease in the future. We'll be coming back to this later in the episode. Paul Meacham has dedicated much of his professional life to the dream of Mars exploration. Like Anita, he got the space bug when he was young. I was only seven or eight, I think, and we did a project on planets at school. And something inside me just just clicked, and I knew that this is what I wanted to spend my life doing. I was so fascinated by it, and I just loved it. Paul now works at Airbus Defence and Space, where he gets to be part of making history in the field he was so drawn to as a kid. It's interesting, when we we talk about space exploration, we have come an absolutely huge way in, what, 70 years? Starting with, with the very first satellite that orbited our Earth, which was the Russian Sputnik satellite. And that was launched in the the late 1950s. And then fairly quickly, actually, Mars came up on on the horizon with the NASA Viking missions of the 1970s. So we were already landing hardware on Mars fairly quickly after the, the, the very first satellites were being sent up. Finding ways to explore Mars and bring information about the planet back to Earth has always been a high priority for scientists. But it's since we've had these rovers which have allowed us to do the the on-surface exploration that things have really taken a jump forward. The very first rovers that were sent to Mars were were, were very small vehicles. I mean, no no bigger than a remote-controlled car. But part of the challenge was to get them there in the first place and get them down to the surface correctly. That increasing development and, and experience that we've gained has allowed us to send bigger and bigger and more complex rovers mainly focused on the geology of Mars to begin with, so the conditions for life, the presence of water in the past or today. But, Paul says, we're now entering a new era of Mars exploration. Where we want to actually look for biological signs of life as well. And that's exactly what Paul works on, as the engineering manager on the ExoMars rover, a project for the European Space Agency, based at Airbus in Stevenage not to be confused with NASA's Perseverance rover, which is already on Mars. Picture an aluminium box smaller than a washing machine, with fold-out solar panels and a camera on a mast sticking up in the middle. On wheels. One of the things that people always say to us is that it looks like Johnny Five or Wally, depending on your generation, because of the cameras at the top of the mast. The objective of the ExoMars mission is to search for signs of life on the red planet. We want to do ever more elaborate things. 
We want to take samples from below the surface. We want to explore areas which are not easy to access, like craters and things like that. We want to take the sample we have and analyze it in ever more complex ways. For example, cook it to release the gases from it. As pioneering as this work is, Paul says there are some very common misconceptions about what Mars exploration really looks like. I think probably the, the most common perception is that we're going to drive around at high speed and discover lots of little green men walking around, which is really not the case. I mean, actually, the first thing to note is that is the rover does move extremely slowly. That's slowly like travelling 100 metres per day. When the rover's on Mars, depending on orbits, it could be as far away as 250 million miles from Earth. And that means that it's actually dangerous to be flying around too quickly. Plus, the computing power we have on board, in order for it to be space qualified, does actually have to be sort of uh, at least 10 years old. Compared to what you buy in a retailer today, it has to be demonstrated to be completely robust to radiation and will work reliably. So some of the technology is not actually as cutting edge as you think. It's cutting edge for space, but actually compared to sort of a terrestrial equivalent, it's very robust and reliable and simple. The technology also has to work in an atmospheric environment that's completely different to Earth. If you could imagine you're on, the, on your mobile phone in the kitchen and, and, and someone starts the microwave, immediately that microwave starts to interfere with the phone signal and that, the same thing happens with Wi-Fi. And when you take a spacecraft outside of the protective layer of the atmosphere, you're essentially in a giant microwave. You've got all this solar radiation pelting you with no protection. And of course, exactly the same thing happens. You can cause this interference in your communication system. And of course, if you can't talk to your rover on the surface of Mars, then, then the mission is essentially worthless. It's, it's over. You can't command it and you can't get any data back from it. The ExoMars mission has two parts to it. There's a trace gas orbiter currently circling Mars, that's searching for gases that could contain markers of subsurface life, methane, for example, which we know can have a biological source. And then the rover is there to actually really get the samples of areas of interest and actually look for the very building blocks of life, what we call biomarkers. These are things like amino acids and proteins, things that are common amongst all life and would also be indicative of both past and present life on Mars. Building these ExoMars rover vehicles is an incredibly painstaking and complicated task. Paul and his team need to think about every imaginable scenario for what they need the rover to do, or how things could go wrong. Because once they're up there, the chances of repairing them or changing things to make them work better is, is, is essentially impossible. The rover needs to see obstacles, drive over rocky terrain without falling over, and it's got to be at least semi-autonomous because a lot can go wrong between the moment the rover meets trouble and the moment the team back on Earth hears about it. The time delay between Earth and Mars can be as much as 20 minutes each way. So you can imagine it's either really inefficient or downright dangerous to be driving the rover from Earth with that 40-minute round trip. Instead, you want the rover to be making as much of the decisions as possible. So the team had to build a semi-autonomous vehicle that can survive in space, safely traversing terrain no human has ever set foot on, while also collecting and analysing samples from the planet. 
How do you even begin? Well, create a fake Mars, of course, in Stevenage. The Mars Yard is about 30 metres long by 14 metres wide. So it's a really huge sand area. It has about 250 tonnes of sand in it, as well as a selection of rocks and slopes, which we create into different scenarios. It has the correct lighting environment, which is consistent with the lighting on the Martian surface. This allows Paul and the team to create lots of different scenarios, obstacles and problems for the rover to encounter. And then we can firstly design our systems around that to make sure they can handle that sort of terrain. They can correctly perceive and understand objects that are beyond the rover's capability and avoid them. And then also as we go forward to sort of do the fine tuning to make sure we're doing that as efficiently as we can while still ensuring the rover's safety. But the potential risks to the rover on Mars don't begin and end with things they can test in the Mars yard. One of the key challenges of building this rover is the fact that it has to be sterilised. Essentially, we're not allowed to take virtually anything organic with us because of the danger, firstly, of contaminating Mars, but also of getting a false positive on one of our instruments. One of the worst things that could happen is the ExoMars rover discovering a sign of life that's actually just a trace of biological material it brought with it from Earth. And what this means is the flight rover, the one that will actually go to Mars, has to be built and tested in an extremely controlled environment. To go in there, you have to wear a suit where basically only your eyes show. The team constantly has to monitor the amount of contamination the rover is encountering. The process is called assaying, and so we effectively take swabs of the rover um, at a fairly regular interval and just see how many bacterial spores are on this rover and how much particulate is building up and and so on and so on to make sure we're still keeping that level of cleanliness throughout the the run-up to launch. In the course of building this rover, we are barely at 10% of the requirement on the the level of contamination we're allowed prior to launch. So our processes are working really, really well. Processes like this. Everything on the rover before it comes to us is sterilised using a process called dry heat microbial reduction, which is essentially we bake the unit to kill anything on it. And then from that point forward, it's up to us through the way we work with the rover to ensure that that level of cleanliness is maintained. So that means the sort of clothing we have to wear to go into the clean room, the process of putting it on to make sure we don't contaminate it in any way. But even the way you move in the clean room is really important because if you if you start running around and charging about through the clean room, then you disturb the airflow. Every element of the vehicle is prototyped and tested using different models, with each finished component then rebuilt specially for the one flight rover, which lives in this carefully controlled sterile room, waiting for the day it's finally sent on the long journey to Mars. I got to go into the clean room on a couple of occasions and just be stood in front of the flight rover, and I can't tell you what that felt like. You know, after working on the programme for so long, to have seen good days and bad, to be stood in front of this thing, thinking this is the thing that's going to be on Mars one day. It's an incredibly humbling experience, I think, when you're in that moment. This was essentially my, my working life to this point, my life's work. Just one of the most incredible experiences. I'm sure launch and landing will be like that too. 
So how do you land a Mars rover safely on the planet's surface? Well, that's the point where the work done by people like Paul meets the work done by people like Anita. This podcast is brought to you by Randox. Earlier, we spoke to Dr. Kieran Richardson, who works in the R&D team. He explained that Randox has developed a simple test that will help doctors identify the people who are at greatest risk of developing Alzheimer's, based on the presence of a gene called APOE4, and in particular, people who carry more than one copy of the gene. I believe that people who carry two copies, it's only 2 to 3% of the population So we should really be keeping a very close eye on those individuals and we should be intervening early. Early identification of the presence of APOE4 would let patients seek out treatments to minimise the effect of Alzheimer's on their life. Treatments to reduce the level of inflammation in your body could potentially have an impact. I checked the clinicaltrials.gov database recently and it shows there's 121 new agents under clinical trials for Alzheimer's disease. Through these trials, researchers are working to build a more comprehensive clinical picture that they can use to keep working on new and better treatments. At Roundox, the team is trying to identify new biomarkers that could help doctors with diagnosing Alzheimer's. The hope in this field is that new therapies will come on board that can really have a significant impact on disease progression or ultimately cure the disease. You can find out more about the work Randox does by visiting randoxhealth.com. To land a Mars rover, you have to drop it from a spacecraft into the planet's atmosphere. It's travelling faster than the speed of sound, so you need to slow it down to stop it being destroyed on impact. So scientists turn to another surprisingly simple solution. My portion of the mission was actually working on the supersonic parachute. Okay, simple might be the wrong word. This is Anita Sengupta again, who developed a supersonic parachute for NASA's Curiosity rover, which is on Mars right now sending pictures and videos back to Earth and searching the surface of the planet for evidence of microbial life. So when you do entry, descent, and landing through a planet with an atmosphere, you can actually use the atmosphere to slow you down. So you're coming in with a lot of energy, with orbital energy, and then you hit the atmospheric interface, and then you can start producing aerodynamic drag. The greater aerodynamic drag you can produce, the more you can slow down the rover. So you start off with something called a heat shield or an aeroshell, which encapsulates the rover. And it kind of looks like a a strange-looking salad bowl, and that shape actually produces a lot of drag. The heat shield slows down the rover until it reaches two times the speed of sound. At that point, you actually can't slow down anymore because your area is too small. That's when you deploy a parachute. So it's a supersonic parachute because it has to be deployed at two times the speed of sound. Parachute gives you this really large drag area, which allows you to slow down even more. That gets the rover down to around 250 miles an hour. And at that point, once again, you can't go any slower because you've reached terminal velocity, essentially. So then you do the rest of your descent retropropulsively with rockets, which are firing towards the ground to slow you down. So you get down to just basically a few feet per second. That's when the sky crane comes in. This is a touchdown system, which is essentially a huge jetpack powered by eight rockets. 
the rover dangles below the sky crane on three nylon ropes, slowing the descent just enough for a safe landing. The rover is lowered, touches the ground, tethers are cut, and that little spacecraft that was with those little retro rockets flies away. The ExoMars mission, which Paul works on, was first conceived by the European Space Agency in 2001. And the rover is finally planned for launch in 2022. So each of these missions is decades in the making. But even as different space agencies approach the long-awaited launch date of a given mission, they're already looking to the future. What will be the next frontier? ExoMars is essentially a one-way trip to Mars. It takes with it all the different scientific equipment it needs to do the scientific inquiry, the scientific analysis of the samples it collects. But of course, it is true that if you could even bring back a gram of Martian soil back to Earth and actually analyse it in a proper full-scale Earth laboratory, you could do immeasurably more and find out so much more about the sample and what's going on with it. We're developing a rover that's going to go to Mars, autonomously drive across the surface, pick up some samples that have been cached by a previous rover, then take them back so that then they can be launched back to Earth and and analysed in the future. This is Alistair Wayman. I work for Airbus and I'm a systems engineer working on the Sample Fetch rover project. The Mars Sample Return Mission, which Alistair's rover is part of, is the What's Next project that's already in development. That's before the ExoMars rover even begins its own journey into space. Its purpose is to bring Mars samples back to Earth. It's the first pristine Martian samples that we're ever going to have back on on Earth. The Apollo samples are still being analysed to this day and huge amounts of new science being done on them. That's the Apollo missions to the moon way back in the 60s and 70s. With these ones from Mars, hopefully we're going to have exactly the same kind of kind of legacy. There'll be scientists all around the world that want to get involved with analysing these samples. The samples are going to be from a place called Jezero Crater and on the edge of it where we're going to be looking was a delta where a river flowed into a lake previously and at that point you've got all sorts of different geology that's taken place over over many years and it's just an incredibly interesting place scientifically. Getting these soil and rock samples back from Mars is going to be a feat of absolutely meticulous planning and incredible engineering. The first part of the campaign is the Perseverance rover that was launched to Mars in 2020. So it's already there. It's done its first few months on the surface. And now it's starting to drive around, find interesting science targets, assess those with the ultimate aim of working out what are the most interesting things that it can then physically get some samples of and store them on the surface. Perseverance will choose samples and place them in small test tubes, each one about the size of a pen. 40-odd of them, and then we'll choose a number of them, 30 of them, and it'll be those pen-sized tubes with bits of Mars in them that are then brought back to Earth for analysis. Perseverance will identify a couple of strategic locations on Mars to leave the test tubes. And in 
2026 kind of time frame, the Sample Fetch rover is going to launch to Mars aboard something called the Sample Return Lander. That not only has the rover on it, it's also got an arm and also a launch vehicle, the Mars Ascent system. The Sample Return Lander will arrive on Mars in 2028. Then we will have about a Martian year, so that's 400-odd days on the surface. The rover will drive around collecting the test tubes that have been left by Perseverance, using a specially developed robotic arm to carefully pick them up. And then the arm will put it inside that Mars Ascent system, and then it will launch back up into Martian orbit so that it's orbiting around Mars waiting. That's where another spacecraft comes in, the Earth Return Orbiter. It's going to rendezvous in Mars orbit with these samples that are orbiting around Mars. It'll capture them, store them on board, then bring them back to Earth. They'll re-enter back through the atmosphere and then land in Utah in the States, ready for analysis in 2031. Every small step taken to move space exploration forward brings us a little bit closer to understanding our universe and takes us a little bit further out into its depths. We're building a lot of this stuff off of the ExoMars mission. With Sample Fetch Rover, we're trying to go further, faster, more autonomous. We're trying to take that next step. It's people like Anita, Paul and Alistair whose endless curiosity helps drive so much of our exploration into the moons, planets, solar systems and galaxies we've yet to visit. So Enceladus, I've always been a fan of. That's one of Mars's moons. There's geysers that are erupt from the surface. There were ice particles coming out of it which had organic content in them. So, you know, whilst we're looking for these sorts of things on the surface of Mars, we know they already exist erupting from this tiny little moon. So I would like for us to collect those particles. Enceladus has been confirmed that it does have a liquid subsurface ocean. It's so fascinating and so interesting, and I just want us to go and explore those places. We'd learn something totally new that we haven't looked at yet. The Future Lab podcast is brought to you by Randox. It's presented by me, Lucy Johnston. The producers are Arlie Adlington, Isis Thompson, Paul Smith, and Peggy Sutton from Something Else with Neil Cole. The annual Future Lab Live is taking place at the Goodwood Festival of Speed from the 8th to the 11th of July. Click the link in our show notes to find out more and book tickets to see for yourself some of the incredible technologies we're talking about in this podcast. <laughs>